Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Mike. I'm supposed to do a microphone check with Mike before we start, and I just didn't. I don't know. So thank you for that. Thank you, Tim, for being back there as well. And Nate. All right. Well, good morning. As we dive into the second to last message on the book of James this week, uh, we're talking about patience, and I'll tell you that if you know me, um, you would find it very ironic that I'm preaching on patience, right? Like, um, Brenda said something this morning, Maya, I don't want to pick on you. What's that phrase that you taught me? We were talking about people always tell you when you like miss somebody that you care about, like you miss your significant other, and they say something like it's better after you see them. You don't know what you're, t- you, you taught me some phrase. Like, when you miss somebody and then you see them after a while and it's supposed to, like, make it better? Yeah, say it, say it louder. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. So my, in less eloquent words than Amy, when Bailey and I started dating, we lived two hours apart, and my parents would say something like, absence makes the heart grow fonder, and I would be like, shut up. Like, no, sorry, don't say shut up. But, like... That is just not who I am. Patience is the fruit of the Spirit that I struggle with the most. And uh, in the midst of difficulties, like the difficulties being faced by the audience to the book of James, if you've been here throughout the sermon series, you'll know that the people to whom James is writing are experiencing significant suffering. Persecution at the hands of the wealthy elite, persecution at the hands of the Roman rulers, persecution from all different avenues to the point that they actually, most of them had probably started in Jerusalem and then had to be sent away from Jerusalem for fear of their own lives. And so I'm not the kind of guy, when things start to go wrong, who does very well at just sitting around. I'm a do-something kind of person. My fight-or-flight response is very heavily geared towards fight. And the difficulty with that is that oftentimes in life, situations exist where not a lot can be done, where, we, where it, it seems like there's no amount of, of fighting that can take place, and we're simply just called to wait and to trust that God is going to work all things together for good. And all of those things are true, that God will work all things together for good, that no suffering is wasted in the hands of God, and the waiting and the suffering still hurt. The, the waiting and the suffering in the midst of difficulty still brings very real and very true pain. And so this morning's uh, sermon title, I, I apologize, we were doing the little cards and then you didn't get any this week and that's just because I didn't print them. So I apologize. Uh, but the sermon title this morning is Hopeful Waiting. So I woke up on Thursday, February 2nd, early in the morning, uh, to a text from my mom. I had been prepared for a quiet day of working in the office. Bailey was getting ready to leave for school. But instead, I read on my phone that my 21-year-old cousin, who was like a little sister to me growing up, was in the hospital unresponsive from an intentional overdose on her heart medication. Uh, She was 21, she was newly married, she was about to finish school at the University of Iowa. And so we got to the hospital in Cedar Rapids and we waited for hours. Uh, We were there, I I got there probably 7 in the morning and we were there until maybe 11 o'clock and 
Um, after we had been waiting, they finally got her heart to start beating again. She was life flighted from Cedar Rapids to the University of Iowa. So we get in the car and we drive down to the University of Iowa. And when we got there, we sat in the waiting room for another hour or so uh, before a doctor came in and had to tell our entire family that she would never recover. And so we waited another five hours in the University of Iowa hospital before the paperwork could be filed to take her off of life support. And all the while, I'm thinking to myself, I am helpless to do anything at all. All I could do for that entire day was to sit and wait. I prayed and I prayed, but it didn't make the day go any faster. And I tell you that story about the loss of my cousin not to make you feel bad for me, nor do I tell it to you simply to stir up your emotions. No, I let you in on that day, that very real day in my life this past February to tell you this. Hopeful waiting does not mean that pain isn't real. Hopeful waiting on the Lord means finding endurance in his provision for the now and looking forward, hopefully, with hope to the fullness of his presence at his return. Trusting, finding endurance in who God is and how he's providing for us now and looking forward with hope in our hearts towards the day that he returns. Finding the strength to carry on in patience now because he gives it to us, he provides for us, and being sustained by the hope of knowing that he's coming back someday and that I won't feel like this forever, that things won't be the way they are right now forever. Remember, the people that James is writing to had also experienced suffering. They're part of the early Jewish Christian diaspora. They were people that had been displaced from in and around Jerusalem by persecution and were still, even at the time of James writing this letter, facing opposition and oppression and judgment from the wealthy elites. And so James writes to them in chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. And actually, the sermon was already long enough, so I'm only preaching through 11, and hopefully Andrew will get 12 next week. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord is coming near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about, that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And then verse 12, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. And so this morning, we're going to look at four exhortations from James that he gives us for being patient in the midst of suffering and struggling. And the first is this, be patient because Jesus is coming. One of the reasons that many of us struggle, I think, with being patient in the midst of suffering is because we fail to understand how our present circumstances could ever be improved or how they might actually be used for our good. It doesn't always seem like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And so we take on this, this fatalistic 
pessimism, this kind of identifying with our suffering in such a way that our suffering actually becomes part of who we are. We, we take on the mindset of my life, my life sucks, it's always sucked and it always will, which must mean somehow that I suck too and that I'm not valuable in the eyes of God because he's allowed it to be this way. I must be irredeemable. My, my life must be useless. Things will always be the way that they are right now because suffering is just part of who I am. Having a bad life is just part of my existence. But James's encouragement is one that I think is lost upon many of us in the 21st century church because we don't talk enough about eschatology. We don't talk enough about the end times, and, and we're guilty of that too. It's just not something we focus on a lot. But in reality, the encouragement, the main encouragement for the first century church is, hey, things are hard right now, yes, but Jesus is coming back. But Jesus is coming back. And now secular people, people who, who don't believe, will try and tell you that James and Paul, other New Testament writers, thought that Jesus was coming back during their earthly lifetimes, and that somehow disproves everything about Christianity, and that's just not true. James and Paul and the other New Testament writers, they were well aware that the return of the Lord is not something that happens immediately, immediately near to them in terms of number of earthly years, but as the very next event in the timeline of God's redemptive plan for humanity. Jesus was born, he lived, he died, he rose from the grave, he ascended into heaven, and now the very next thing on the timeline of God's redemptive plan is Jesus' return. And so we're living in that middle ground, waiting for Jesus' return. Jesus himself, when he was in his earthly ministry, said that no one knows when the hour is that he will return. And so we should be prepared at all times. And so as believers that are living in this particular season, this particular time in history, in God's redemptive plan for the world, we live when the culmination of the ages, the end of time, everything coming to how it's supposed to be in the end, it's been inaugurated, it's been started, but it has not yet been finished. And so you'll sometimes hear to this referred to as the already not yet. And it should give us an invincible sense of hope and patience because we know as Christians that no matter what takes place in our here and now, our outcome is already secured. That, that nothing that happens here can damage or defile the inheritance that's waiting for us in heaven when Jesus comes back. We know that our suffering isn't meaningless and that it doesn't define us and it won't last forever because we know and we have hope in the fact that Jesus is coming back and on that day that he comes back, those of us who are his followers are going to step into our eternal experience of complete joy the absence of any suffering as we begin our new existence of rejoicing in the direct, tangible presence of God for all eternity. That's what we have waiting for us. And so despite what I face now, despite what we face now, our future is secured. So I can have hope even when things are difficult. That doesn't mean that things won't be tough now. There are all kinds of examples in the Bible throughout the history of Christianity even of Christians suffering torment and oppression. Peter, for heck's sake, was crucified upside down, and yet our contentment is unshakable because we look forward to the day when there will be no more tears and no more pain and no more sorrow or suffering or heartbreak because we know that that day is coming when Jesus returns and he promises us that he will return. 
it's kind of like pregnancy. I don't, if you don't know, my wife Bailey is 18 weeks pregnant. And listen, life has not been easy for the last few months. Food diversions, morning sickness, discomfort, all the rest of it. All of the stuff that she has to struggle through that you moms or moms-to-be have struggled through in pregnancy. And yet, you know that at the end of the line, something awaits you that makes the entire process bearable that actually gives you hope and joy in the midst of difficulty as you look forward to what awaits you at the end of a pregnancy. In the same way, or in a similar way, we are called to look forward in the midst of our difficulties with hope to Christ's return. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There's going to be stuff There's going to be sin that tries to tangle you up. Some of it's going to be your own doing, your own sin. Some of it's going to be the enemy trying to get you focused on your circumstances so that you take your eyes off of Jesus and focus on yourself. And so this morning, one of my hopes is that as we look forward to Christ's return, that we would get our eyes off of ourselves. That that instead of this like navel-gazing, woe-is-me kind of Christianity, that we would actually, in the midst of our suffering, be a beacon of the hope and the light of Jesus Christ to the rest of the world as we say, yeah, this stuff right now, it actually has no power over me because I'm hoping, I'm looking forward with hopeful expectation to the day when Jesus comes back and takes me home. Because the enemy's already defeated He's waiting for the coming of the Lord too, but he's not waiting with hope. He's waiting with dread. And so as he's in, as Satan's in the death throes, he is going to try to get you to identify with your present circumstances and not with your future glory. Don't let him. With the help of the Holy Spirit, ask God to fix your eyes, not on the stuff that's going on around you and trying to steal your attention away, but fix your eyes on Jesus. Run towards Him, run towards Him and not just away from your suffering. Run towards Jesus and not just away from your suffering. Get your eyes off of yourself and your suffering and on to Jesus, the one who had to be far more patient with us than you and I will ever have to be even with ourselves, and who had to be far more patient than we could ever imagine, as for three hours he hung on a cross and bore the weight of humanity's sin, even the ones that you're stuck in right now, because his eyes were fixed upon the day when he would return and he would reconcile you to himself because he loves you and he wants you with him in heaven for eternity. So be patient because Jesus is coming. And be patient because Jesus provides. James gives us an example of this hopeful waiting by using an illustration that should be familiar with many of us here, a farmer. He says, just like the farmer has to wait for the autumn and the spring rains to nourish the crops, so we have to wait patiently and trust that the Lord will give us the exact provision that we need. And so interestingly, based on when James says that it should be raining during the season of a crop's growth, we know that James is specifically writing to people on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, for it would rain specifically in the autumn and in the spring. 
And he says to these people, to these farmers in uh, modern-day Israel, he says, listen, the crops need rain early to get the seeds started growing, and they need rain late to bring the seeds to maturity. If you don't get both of them, you would not have a usable crop. But God, who created the rain and who created the seeds and who created the soil, provides exactly what the farmer needs. All the farmer has to do is be patient and be faithful where he's at. And the same is true of us. When we face suffering, we trust that God knows, that the creator of the universe knows exactly what we need in ways that we ourselves will never even fully understand and that he will provide it at exactly the time that we need it. So be patient because God provides. Are any of you in here runners? Not many of us. That's fine. I'm not either. I mean, I ran track in high school, and I wasn't, I wasn't actually that bad at it, but I didn't just run for fun. I ran because I was racing against someone and because I usually only had to run for 400 meters or less at a time. So I'm like, this can suck for like, you know, 60 seconds or less, and then I can be done with running. I, I, but we have one of our best friends, one of Bailey and I's best friends. Uh, her name is Sid. She's a marathon runner, and you will never catch me doing anything like that. Maybe it's the caveman still in me, but my idea of exercise is more like pick up this heavy thing in front of me and then put it back down and let me pick it up a few times and put it back down a few times and then I'm tired. That's, like, that's my workout style. But on the occasions that I have decided to run, like, every, like once every 12 to 16 months, I'll just get this random thought like, I should go on a run. And I've noticed that the same thing always seems to happen when I go on a run or sometimes when I, when I go on a bike ride. And I didn't even notice it until I was listening to a podcast uh, a number of years ago from a pastor named Jay Holland about gratitude. And he said this, you ever notice that when you're running and the wind is blowing, it feels like you're running straight into a headwind? But you're thinking to yourself, the second I turn around, that wind is going to be at my back and it's going to carry me a bit. And then as soon as you get to your end point and you turn back around and start running the other way, the wind just stops entirely, right? Like every single time. You're like, of course that would happen. Of course the headwind that I thought was going to be a tailwind would stop blowing the second I turn around. And so you're running and you feel like you're running in the midst of this, of like the still like Iowa right now kind of air, you know, where you can like feel it on your fingers. And then you look over and you see that the trees are actually still moving, that the wind is still blowing just as fast as it was before. But you noticed it when it was in your face and you don't notice it when it's at your back. This is actually a phenomena called headwind, tailwind, asymmetry. It exists because for the first time in human history, during the last 75 years or so, our default position as people has become, I deserve to be happy. And so we've stopped noticing the things that are at our back and only noticed the things that stop us from moving forward because we've taken on this idea that our life exists for us to be happy. And that's actually an entirely new thing in the grand scheme of history. For most of human history, the default understanding has not been, I deserve to be happy. It's been, I don't even deserve to live. Like, this world is trying to kill me, and I'm just going to work hard enough to survive, and I'm going to struggle every day to provide for myself and for my family, and then I'm going to die, and the next generation is going to do the same thing. That was humanity for, for most of its history up until the last 75 years or so. But because of our modern advancements that make surviving much easier— We've taken on this 
collective mindset that we deserve to have things go well for us by default. And so our minds naturally notice things that we feel are wrong without even considering all the things that go right on a regular basis. For example, you probably don't spend a whole lot of time being thankful for all of your body parts that work and that don't hurt. You just think about the ones that do hurt and the ones that don't work. Or you notice all the things wrong with your parents or with your children, but you're rarely thankful for the fact that you even have parents or children. Or you complain about the food in the fridge that goes bad, but disregard the fact that you're still going to get to eat tonight despite that food spoiling. That last one is very close to home for me. And so even when things are not going well for us, there's so much for us to be thankful for, and yet we often disregard those very things. Supreme among them, the fact that we have within us God himself in the form of his Holy Spirit, and he's made a way for us to always know that he's near to us, that he provides for us, that he offers us refuge in our time of struggle. If you're hearing this, If you're hearing my voice, whether you're hearing it here in person today or online 10 years from now, God has has never yet failed you to the point of you being completely overwhelmed or done with. If you are able to hear what I'm saying right now, then God has never before failed you. No matter how bad things are, you're here, right? He's never failed you. Things might not have looked exactly the way that you wanted them to, but he has never failed you to this point if you're hearing what I'm saying. So why would he start now? He's never stopped being faithful. Even when I'm hypocritical and ungrateful and caught up in my own sin, Jesus has never stopped being long-suffering beside me. He never leaves me. He never forsakes me. He never abandons you. And in fact, even when you're in the deepest pits of despair in your life, that's often when Jesus is closest to us. It's often when he's the closest to us that he's ever been because Jesus himself was a sufferer. His life was marked by suffering and by struggling for the sake of the kingdom of God. And then he suffered on our behalf on the cross and even now continues to suffer alongside us. Christianity does not promise that you won't suffer, but it does promise that you will never suffer alone. And it promises that your suffering will never be wasted. That he's walking through your suffering with you. That in the midst of it, Jesus is close to you. He's near to you. He's providing for you. It's what allowed David in Psalm 23 to write, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Be patient and be grateful because Jesus provides all that you need and far more than you could ever ask or imagine. And no matter what you're going through, he will always continue to provide because he is with you. Third, be patient because Jesus mends. Typical of Jesus' writing up to this point, excuse me, typical of James's writing up to this point in the epistle, his words are a warning taken directly from the teachings of Jesus. So if you remember back to our Sermon on the Mount series from not that long ago, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
it seems to, it seems to me like we, and myself included in that we, tend to be okay at following this command when things are going well. Not that we do it perfectly, but we're kind of all right at it. But the second things start to go poorly for us, we feel the need to start pointing fingers at the people around us, even in the church. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Pastors are just as bad at this as everybody else. You know, I just had finished writing a sermon on patience on Friday night, and then we went to a Christian concert in Chicago, and guess what I was not exhibiting that day? Guess what fruit of the Spirit wasn't showing up in my life? As we uh, tried to get to the arena, the parking lots brocked off, so they'd take us two miles down the road to another parking lot that only accepts cash, and I'm bad as a concert goer, and so I didn't even bring any cash, so then I turned back around and go two miles back down the road. Then the parking lot I wanted to get into in the first place was now no longer blocked off, and I'm like, why did you make me go that way in the first place? So I get into the parking lot, and then we get there, and they do take cards, and the card reader's not working. (laughs) And I'm like over here kicking myself because I'm white knuckling the steering wheel, my lovely wife beside me, trying to help me and give me direction, and I just want to scream, and there's this nice lady whose card reader is not working, and I didn't even think to ask her, does she know Jesus, or does she even know that we're like coming here to worship Jesus, like there are 12,000 people here to worship Jesus, and I'm so impatient with all the things going on around me that I'm just angry at everyone, including this nice young lady who has nothing to do with why I'm frustrated. She did let us get in and park for free, though, so props to her for that. If I ever see her again someday, I'm going to, I wasn't mean to her, but I didn't say as much as I should have. Or like not long ago, I was invited to speak at a luncheon hosted by an organization called Serve the City, and I was speaking on behalf of this group of youth pastors from the greater Cedar Rapids area that meet together, and we encourage one another, we host ministry events together, like you'll sometimes see that we take students and do worship nights at like Faith Bible or Cedar Valley Bible. And so I got up and I spoke to this group of people from Cedar Rapids, mostly pastors and ministry leaders from Cedar Rapids, about what our group does and and the ministry events that we host together. And after I sat down, I could hear another one of the youth youth pastors from our group, someone who, to this day, I would still call a friend and a co-laborer for the gospel, and he was talking to someone else at our table about all the things that I had said wrong or I had failed to say at all. And later that, and so I'm, I'm kind of upset. I'm like, what, he's like speaking poorly about me to someone else. And, and so he's pointing fingers at me and then I'm getting defensive and pointing fingers back at him. And later this guy comes to me and informs me that in reality, he was in a difficult situation, a difficult season at his church. He was afraid that he was going to lose his job because of budget cuts. And then seeing me getting to speak instead of him was just one more thing on his plate. And so he apologized to me. We reconciled. We put it in the past. And knowing this guy, I can guarantee you that if he hadn't been going through that difficult time himself, the interaction never would have happened. But it illustrates this idea that even such a good guy like this friend of mine, even a guy that, again, to this day is a friend, When things are going wrong in your life, it becomes very easy to point fingers at other people. 
It becomes very easy to grumble. It becomes very easy to, to damage and break relationships because of uh, our, our own struggles and our own suffering. We just feel the need to kind of push that pain out onto people around us. It's as if we have this defense mechanism that when things aren't going well for us, we feel the need to compare ourselves to others, to nitpick their flaws, to grumble against them so that we don't have to feel so bad about ourselves. And oftentimes I think we judge ourselves by our intentions, which we always claim are good, and then we judge other people by their actions, having no clue what they might be going through. And so right after that quote in Matthew 7, Jesus goes on to talk about not noticing the plank in our own eye while being quick to see the speck in a brother's eye. And in the same way, James is warning us in chapter 5 that when things get tough, we should be reminded that Jesus doesn't grumble against us when we constantly sin against him, and so we should not grumble against others. That's why it's important for us to just talk things out as Christians. Jesus actually laid it out for us in Matthew 18, the prescription on how to handle conflict in the church. Like, you're mad at somebody in the church? Read Matthew 18. It tells you exactly how you should deal with it. That if we have a legitimate problem with one another, that we should talk to them directly instead of talking to them, talking to others about them. And if we're just saying what we're saying to make ourselves feel better, and not to help point the other person who we have a problem with to Jesus, then we should check our hearts and reconsider whether or not we should speak at all. If I have a problem with someone and, and my words are only to make me feel better, then I need to reconsider whether or not I should be speaking them. Cards on the table, I know that some of you, maybe even right this second, are not happy with something that I did or that Andrew did. Like, there's enough of us in this church. Praise the Lord that there's so many of us. At least one of you in here is probably upset with me right now. That's just the reality of the situation, right? Maybe you're upset with Andrew. Probably both of us. Heck, I don't know. Some of you might not be pleased with someone else in the church. And guess what? That's okay. That's part of what it means to be a church family. The real test of obedience when we're upset with each other For all of us is this, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to approach one another with humility and grace? Or are we going to have parking lot conversations with other people and grumble against the person that we have a problem with? Because James says the judge is at the door. So even when I'm in the parking lot and I think that my gossip is just between me and my friend, don't forget that nothing escapes God's ears. And he alone gives us the power of his Holy Spirit to forgive and to reconcile with one another. So we can either choose to do that, we can either choose to forgive, to reconcile, to be brought back together as a church body when we have problem with one another, to allow Jesus to mend our relationships, or we can choose to continue on grumbling. But James is warning us, Jesus sees both. All right, lastly, be patient. God is compassionate and merciful. James goes on to say in verses 10 and 11 that the prophets who have gone before are examples of endurance and that actually the ones who stuck it out, the ones who were patient, who waited with hope, those are the ones who are truly blessed. And what does he mean by that? What kind of patience, what kind of endurance are we supposed to have, you might ask? Well, in verse 11, the word that is used for endurance is the same word that's used in James chapter 1, verse 3. And so if you remember all the way back to the beginning of the summer, this is 
one of Andrew's favorite verses or one of Amy's favorite verses, I can't remember who, but one of them I know in their family really loves this. It's James 1, 2, 3, and that helps me remember it every time. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That's the same word in verse 3 that's in verse 11. Perseverance, patience, endurance, waiting in the midst of trials, Those things actually are joys for those of us that are in Christ because we can trust that God is compassionate and merciful in such a way that those things are never wasted. And James says you should consider it, you should count as blessed the prophets who went before you who suffered for the name of God. Let's just think really quick about some of the ways that James is saying the prophets were blessed. Isaiah, you know what Isaiah had to do? He had to walk around naked and barefoot for three years and tell people about their sin. Now you think like, maybe at some point that couldn't be so bad, like a lot less laundry anyways, but um, he's walking through the desert. I don't know if you've ever stood out in our parking lot when it's windy, get hit by some of that gravel in the face. Now imagine being naked and having that happen. Ezekiel, just one of the many things that the prophet Ezekiel had to do to be counted as blessed by James as a prophet. He had to lay on one side for 390 days. Not in a comfy bed, but stuck on his side on the ground for 390 days, just laying on the same side, not being able to move. I don't know how many times you roll over just in bed at night, but 390 days on the same side? Jeremiah, who also wrote the book of Lamentations, God calls Jeremiah to go to his people and warn them about all the bad that's coming to them because of their adultery. And then, as a reward, what Jeremiah gets is he gets his people, who are mad about what he's saying, grabbing him and trying to kill him because of the prophecy. And then the people continue to be unfaithful. And so Jeremiah has to watch as his home city gets ransacked and burned to the ground, and then he gets exiled by Babylon, which prompts him to write the book of Lamentations. And if you want to know the kind of of blessed suffering that James is talking about, just um, go read the book of Lamentations. That's your homework this week. Go read the book of Lamentations. The prophet Daniel, he was exiled from his home. He was persecuted for his faith. He was thrown into a cave full of hungry lions. That sounds really cute when Andrew and I play the parts of them in VBS, but it's not so cute when you think about what was actually supposed to happen to Daniel in that den. In the epitome of faith in the midst of suffering, what James calls a blessing is Job. Most of you probably know the story of Job. If you don't, it goes something like this. He was the wealthiest and most faithful man in God's creation, and God starts bragging on him to Satan. Satan comes to God in heaven, and God's just like, hey, have you seen my guy Job? And so Satan says, yeah, of course Job worships you now. He's wealthy, he's prosperous, but I promise if you take that away or let me take it away, then he will deny you. And so God allows Satan to take Job's money, his livestock, his possessions. All of his children and their children die. He loses everything in his life within a period of days. Like if Job could have been in on that discussion, it would have been like one of my favorite moments in the history of cinema. It's so funny. If you saw the original Top Gun... Towards the end of the movie, he's flying, and he says, like, I'm going to hit the brakes, and they're going to fly right by me. And the guy in the back seat goes, you're going to do what? 
Like, I imagine Job, if he could have heard God say to Satan, I'm going to let you take everything Job has. And Job would have been like, ah, listen, God, I know you think I'm faithful. I'm not that faithful, man. That would have been Job. And so the only person left in Job's life is his wife. And that's not a good thing for the time being, and I'll tell you why in just a second. And so Job continues to worship God, and Satan says, yeah, I see Job is still worshiping you, but he still has his health. And so if you let me take Job's health from him, then he'll curse you. And so God lets Satan do everything short of kill Job. And as Job is sitting there scraping off his boils with pieces of broken clay pottery, his wife comes over to him and says, why don't you just curse God and die? Like, thanks, babe. That's exactly what I needed from you right now as I'm scraping my boils with clay pots is for you to nag me. And then at the end of the book of Job, when he finally breaks, when he finally loses his faith and starts to question God in the midst of his suffering, God shows up and just kind of like attacks him a little, right? Like God shows up and he's like, yeah, Job, you know how things should go. You're so smart, Job. Um, Can you tell me, where were you when I created the universe with just my voice? Like, where were you when I just told water to exist and it did? Like, where were you when there would have been nowhere on the planet to live so I created land? Essentially saying to Job, like, Job, why do you think you know better than me? And while it might sound harsh, you think about it and it's like, man, God's right. Like if it were up to you and me to run the universe, things would be way worse than they are now. And we think it's bad, but if you disagree with me, you've obviously never studied American politics. Like if it was up to us, things would be much worse. But how does the story of Job end? The the whole reason that James considers it an appropriate way to encourage believers, to remind them that God is compassionate and merciful, is because they know how the story ends. And they know that, in fact, God is compassionate, that he is merciful, that he's near to the brokenhearted and the long-suffering. He's with his people that allowed David to write Psalm 23. He, he restores to Job not only his faith, but but tenfold to what Job had before he lost everything. Not that he doesn't still miss the children from before, but he has more children, and he gets more land and more property and more money. Hear me on this. I know that there is some very real suffering in the past and even in the presence in this room. Like, I know that some of you are going through some stuff right now. And I promise you that you never suffered as much as Job did. If God brought Job through it, why would he not do it for you? Now, it it certainly won't look the same. I'm not saying that you'll get everything that you feel was taken from you plus interest like Job did. It doesn't always work out like that. But you'd better believe that the kindness and the love of God is with you in your suffering in its full measure, just like it was for Job. Even when Job couldn't see it, even when he thought that he could die, God had already told Satan that he wasn't allowed to kill him because God is sovereign and he had a good plan for Job's life. I'm sure when Job was sitting there scraping his boils off with pots that he thought he was about to die and God had already told Satan no. 
And so would you, as the people of God, take refuge in knowing that God is never far from you even when it hurts, and that actually he's going to use that hurt to do things in you that you never thought were possible? Charles Spurgeon, he was the prince of preachers, and he was quoted as saying, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. Right? Modern translation, I have learned to love my trials and my sufferings because they push me into the arms of a steadfast and loving God. I have learned to rejoice in the midst of my storms because they draw me closer to Jesus than I ever feel when things are going well for me. What would our suffering look like if instead of being stuck or caught up in our circumstances, you instead chose to meditate on God's provision, His compassion, His mercy, His mercy, and the future place that has been prepared for you in heaven? Even right now, I don't know what you're going through, but I know that you can choose to cultivate the soil of your heart. And you can either choose to cultivate it with bitterness and envy and despair, or by the grace of God and through the power of His Holy Spirit, you can choose to set your eyes upon Christ, to treasure Him alone above all else in such a way that you actually welcome trials like Charles Spurgeon, that you actually welcome suffering And you welcome the hopeful waiting because all they do is push you closer to God. Draw you farther into Him. Grow you to look more like Him. Our call today from the words of James is to wait with patient hope and eager longing despite our circumstances for the glory that will be revealed in us at Christ's return. And so I leave you today with the words of David Brainerd. If there was a saint in Protestant Christianity, it would probably be him. A man who lived to be only 29 years in the middle of the 18th century. He lost his parents at a young age. He developed tuberculosis while he was in college, which caused him to cough blood every day for the last 10 years of his life. Suffering from what today would be diagnosed as major depressive disorder, He spent what should have been the pride, the pinnacle, the prime of his life in constant physical pain and emotional turmoil as he rode from village to village, preaching among Native Americans, preaching the gospel, leading thousands to Jesus Christ. He would regularly be in such agonizing pain that he would pass out from how much pain he was in. And so he would have his helpers tie him to the back of his horse so that when he rode from one village to the next and he passed out from the pain, he wouldn't fall off of his horse. And despite all of his suffering, despite the depression that he suffered his entire life, despite being caught up in the middle of snowstorms and rainstorms with tuberculosis, he knew that every moment of it had a purpose. He knew that one day he would be able to be truly rejoicing at what his suffering had accomplished, that he would dwell with his God in heaven. And so this morning I leave you in the hopeful waiting with encouragement from an 18th century missionary who died before his 30th birthday. There is a God in heaven who overrules all things for the best. And this is the comfort of my soul. Let's pray.
God, you know our suffering and you see us in the midst of our suffering. And God, we thank you that you're long-suffering besides us, that even when we're hypocritical, even when we're sinful, even when we find ourselves in the midst of valleys that we created for ourselves, Lord, that you will never leave us and that you will never forsake us. God, that no matter what we face, we can rejoice in the trials, in the waves that throw us because they throw us into the arms of your love. And so, God, would we rejoice in you this morning despite our circumstances that you work all things together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Lord Jesus, would you be near to the brokenhearted this morning? And as it says in Isaiah, would you raise us up on wings like eagles? Lord, that we would rejoice, that we would be carried forward, uh, not because everything's going well around us, Lord, but because we know that we have a God in heaven who loves and cares for us. Would you remind us of that this morning, Jesus? We pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.